Hello, and welcome to the 21st episode of Till Death Do Us Part. I'm Daniel. And I'm Melissa. I'm sweating. Why are you sweating? I've been sweating for like six days. Oh, it's menopause. No, it's just it's so hot. It is so hot here. Sorry. Ugh. Oh my goodness. We're moving. We're going to move to the Northwest. Yeah. And be nice and cool. Alaska? Yep. Is Alaska part of the Northwest? It's Northwest of here. Okay. Well, there you go. Heck no. I don't want to move to Alaska. <laughs> Me neither. Let's, let's turn our air conditioner visit. down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So let's start off with some business. Let's do a shout out to one of our 11 listeners. All right. Okay. But this shout out is to another podcast. Sweet. I know. This podcast is one of my top five favorite. And it was my first fangirl kind of moment when they started following our Instagram page for this podcast. And then I kind of started talking to them on Instagram. And they're so sweet. This is Jesse and Andy from Love Murder Podcast. What's up, Jesse and Andy? Yes, they are two friends, like like lifelong friends, who started a podcast. And it's Jesse who reads a book. She actually reads a full book on a case and then tells her best friend Andy about it. And then it's kind of like you, like Andy gives her take on what is happening. And it's really fun. And I really, really enjoy it. And if you haven't gone and listened to them, go listen to them. Go listen. They're great. They did a really great episode on Pamela Smart. So those of you who fell in love with Pammy, go listen to theirs. Theirs is actually really, really good. It's probably better than ours. Probably. (laughs) But these two, Jesse and Andy, have been so nice and so giving and so gracious. Anytime I've had a question or anything, they answer my question. It's just been so nice. That's awesome. Thank thank you, you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And they're young, too, so. Oh, perfect. Yeah, they're like 10 years younger than us. Oh, we are so old. Oh, God, we really are. All right, Daniel, got some factoids? Got something we can discuss. All right. Do you think uh, married couples should discuss the number of their previous partners, meaning sexual partners, before they get married? Um, yes, I think. I don't know. I think yes, or just kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. Do you think people are honest? No. I see. That, that's kind of what I figured. 100% no. Do you think women want to be a higher number or lower number? Lower number. And do you think men want to be higher or lower? Higher. Yep. Am I right? That's what all the studies have shown. Yeah. And that's my personal feeling is... Guys want to feel like they're or or portray that they're better than they are. (laughs) Yes. And women, I guess, want to portray that they aren't as busy as they are. (laughs) Yes. That makes sense. So um, using the uh, Google machine, there was so much stuff on this that it just was all over the map. So you guys can take this with a grain of salt for sure. Women with 10 or more partners had a much higher divorce rate before marriage. Like they had 10 partners before marriage has has a higher divorce right. rate. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm-hmm. Does that seem like a lot? Assuming it, 
say you get married in your late 20s? Um, Does that seem pretty? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Do you know what also has a really high divorce rate? What? Women with two or less. Really? Yeah. So the magic number is three to nine prior to officially settling down. So three to nine partners. Sexual partners. Before you get married. Correct. Okay. But, All right. I mean, you know, I don't know. Um, the average, just the average in the U.S., they say 7.2. Okay. So, I mean, that takes into account everything. I don't know. Right. Now, is this full sexual intercourse, like full adult aerobics or just messing around? Um, I'm going to go with full. Okay. That's what I was thinking. I'm going to, I'm going to assume like, okay, you, you have a significant other mm-hmm. type thing, but maybe not. Maybe one, I know it'd be like a one night stand, I guess that would count. Right? But that's full yeah. adult aerobics. Okay. I assume so. This study's kind of goofy. It's called, it's from Illicit Encounters, Ooh. which is a dating website for married people, which kind of <laughs> seems counterproductive. Isn't but that uh, swingers? Yeah. Okay. Or it shows men and women believe their ideal number before settling down was 12. Holy moly. And it was the same for both sexes. 12. A dozen. A dozen. Yeah. Donuts. Just a, yeah. 10, they said, is too conservative. <laughs> so someone that is 10 or fewer just seemed too few, like they'd be inexperienced. Okay. And uh, 19 or more, they said, is uh, too, they're basically too selfish and... Extreme. I guess. That's on the extreme end. Hard, no, hard to please. Because if you're bouncing around that much, it means you're not satisfied. Oh, Okay. Um, men want to know more about the numbers from the past than the women do. Do you believe that's true? That men want to know. So more. when we, when men you're want married, to know their, yes. Okay. They want to know the past history more than the women. Yes, I can see that. But women are going to lie. You think so? Most women are going to lie. And especially put a smaller if they're, number. yeah, especially if they're getting up into double digits. I think, I think they'd lie. They just keep the number the same once it hits a certain number. Yes, I think so. (laughs) The CDC said 25 to 44-year-olds had a median of 4.2 partners for women and 6.1 for men between the ages of 25 and 44. (laughs) They're lying. (laughs) I (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. I guess it doesn't. To me... I think you'd know. I don't think it matters too much. Yeah. And I think you know your partner if you're going to settle down and, you know, say you're going to be with this person for the rest of your life. I think you know them well enough to know whether or not they can handle your number. That's true. And if they can't handle your number, then maybe you shouldn't be with them. Do you think someone who's had like 30 partners is going to end up with someone who's a virgin? Um, That's a very good question. I would say no. I would think that that would make one or the other very uncomfortable. Maybe because that person who's never experienced that before might be thinking, well, is he he or she thinking about their previous partners and how much better they were than me? That's true. I think most people find someone like themselves. Yeah. Okay. I really do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think overall people typically look for themselves. 
Because we're all narcissists. Kind of. But I mean, you're you're looking for someone who you're comfortable with. A hundred percent. Yeah. So someone who's someone who's been around a lot is going to probably be comfortable with someone else like them. And then they can't really fight about it or be uncomfortable about it because they're already, what are they going to say? Right. They can't hold it against them. No, even though they've held so many people against them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That was about it. That was really educational. Yeah, it was, sure. it was pretty fascinating. Well, I have to say that I do think that women talk to other women about sexual relationships more than men talk to other men about sexual relationships. Oh, 100%. So I know firsthand that women do lie about their number. And you think women have more encounters than they say they do? Yes. Huh. <laughs> yeah, men men definitely have fewer than they say they do. Yes, absolutely. Because it's a it's an ego and a pride thing because somehow we're we're looked down upon, I guess, if we're not spreading our oats all over the place. I don't know. <laughs> And women are looked down upon for being with multiple partners. Yeah. Which doesn't seem quite fair. Nope. But that was before, too. It's probably different now. Yeah, with these younger younger generations. Yep. They're more forgiving. I, you know what the secret is? Role play, dress up as other people with your <laughs> significant other, and pretend. Pretend you're other and people. And then you don't even have to leave your house. That's true. Because right. who wants to leave their house right now? I don't know. It's too freaking hot. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, honey. All right. Daniel. Yo, yo, yo. Are you ready for my case? Nope. <laughs> well... Here it goes anyways. All right, go ahead. All right. This is the case of Stephen and Jody Ann Scharf. All right, Stephen and Jody. Now I'm going to give a trigger warning because I am going to mention physical and mental abuse. All right. Which I don't think we've really covered yet. No, I guess not. I mean, well, there's always some physical abuse because it seems like everyone ends up dead. Very true. Yes, that's very true. All right. So I just want to kind of give people that heads up. It was the last Sunday of the summer, September 20th, 1992, when a motorist frantically entered the Palisades Interstate Parkway Police Station in Alpine, New Jersey, in Bergen County, around 8 p.m. The motorist was telling the officers that a man had desperately flagged him down with a flashlight and asked him to go get help. His wife had fallen off a scenic overlook called the Inglewood Cliffs at the Palisades and was hanging off the ledge. It was near Rockefeller Lookout at a spot called Lover's Chair. Nice. The husband would be waiting at the location where his wife fell. Police immediately called the Inglewood Cliffs Fire Department's experienced rescue climbers to repel down the cliff to rescue the woman. The rescuers cautiously made their way to the lookout spot, which was not easy to get to. The rescuers had to walk 200 yards past the Rockefeller lookout, down a well-worn dirt trail, over a four-foot high wire fence, to a group of boulders that jet out from the top of the cliff. One of those boulders was flat on top and formed a shape that looks like a bench, which locals refer to as lover's chair 
They began lowering themselves down from the exact area the husband said his wife had gone over. About 10 feet down, they came to a ledge and noticed there was a handbag and some contents of a purse lying on the rock, but there was no body, nor was there any indication that a person had landed and rolled off from that location. No blood, hairs, or fibers. The climbers continued rappelling down the side of the cliff. About 120 feet below the ledge, they made it to the ground and still did not see any sign of the woman. She should have been right there, give or take two to three feet, but there was no sign of her. The rescuers began to feel like maybe this was a hoax, but they continued searching. The area below the Palisades is very dense with trees and vegetation, making it very hard to maneuver in the daylight, but almost impossible at night with just a flashlight. The rescuers began walking north along the base of the cliffs, shining their flashlights on the ground and into the trees. About 50 feet from where the woman had fallen, and almost two hours after they had begun their search, the rescuers shined their light on a body lying face down, wedged between a rock and a tree. They had finally located the missing woman, 44-year-old Jody Ann Scharf, and she was motionless. Shining their flashlights on the tree, they could see blood and tissue six to eight feet up on the trunk. There was so much blood that it was running down the seams of the trunk. It was obvious to the rescuers that she had slammed into that tree with incredible force. As her body was being moved into a rescue basket, they noticed the overwhelming smell of alcohol and thought she must have slipped off the rock due to her alcohol consumption. As the rescuers had been searching for the woman, her husband, Stephen Scharf, was taken to the police station to give investigators a detailed description of what had happened. Damn. Yes, sir. It's, it's, this is a hard one, people. According to Stephen Scharf, he and his wife of over 14 years, Jody, had stopped by, quote unquote, their spot on their way from their home in Hackettstown, New Jersey, about 60 miles west of the cliffs, on their way to Manhattan to see a comedy show for a date night. Did that make sense? Yeah. Okay. They're on their way on a date night from Jersey to Manhattan. All right. And then stopped there, allegedly. <laughs> yes. Their, their spot. Okay. I didn't know if that sentence made sense, so I'm glad you caught that. Okay. They had been to that spot over 40 times during their marriage. The couple had pulled in the parking lot around 7 p.m. Stephen had packed a picnic basket with some crackers and cheese, accompanied by wine coolers and two bottles of wine. Stephen and Jody each enjoyed a wine cooler in the car before walking down to Lever's chair with one of those open bottles of wine. <laughs> Stephen sat down first and Jody sat down between his legs. They took in the beautiful view of the lower Hudson River and the New York City skyline that was to their right. The couple also kissed and hugged lovingly. Stephen began feeling uncomfortable and wanted to go back to the car to get the blanket and the picnic basket. His butt probably hurt. Probably. <laughs> from sitting on the... Sitting that would there. be mine. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to stop, but my butt would totally hurt from sitting on Oh, yeah. That. As Stephen got to his feet, so did Jody. Jody told him, no, 
don't go, causing Jody to stumble forward and fall off the cliff. Oh, boy. Stephen fell to his stomach and inched forward towards the edge so he could try to locate Jody, but he couldn't see her or hear her cries for help. Stephen ran to the interstate to flag down a passing motorist to ask for help. This was my question. Was no one else around? Because this is a major tourist destination. It sounds like it. Sounds like it's a pretty cool stop point lookout, right? It is. You can look it, out. I looked at pictures of it. It's actually really cool. But I was thinking, there's got to be tons of people there. And he's running out into traffic with a flashlight trying to flag down a motorist. Yeah. that's That doesn't sound plausible to me. But you never know. Maybe it was a quiet time. Well, it was the end of September. So the weather is still really nice. So you would think people would be out there, but you know, yeah. who am I? I've never been to New Jersey. So maybe know. that's a, I don't know, maybe that's a popular spot, but yeah, not I'm sure right somebody then. will tell us. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Jody Ann was born in 1948 in Washington, D.C. Jody's father was in the army and her mom was an army housewife. Jody had a younger brother named Jonathan. Jody grew up in a happy and loving home. She was very kind and sweet and incredibly smart. Jody attended the University of Georgia. In the late 70s, Jody was teaching history and met Stephen. Stephen was in the army and loved history, especially about the Civil War. Stephen and Jody were married in 1978 and moved to Hackettstown, New Jersey, where Stephen worked as an engineer and Jody got a job at AT AT&T. Nice. In 1983, they had their son, Jonathan, named after Jody's little brother. Jody was a loving and devoted mom to their now 10-year-old son and the main caregiver. To outsiders, Stephen and Jody's marriage was happy. According to those who knew the couple more intimately, their marriage was anything but. Uh-oh. Dun-dun-dun. Stephen was told at the police station that Jody's body had been located and that she was deceased. According to the police officer who had delivered the horrible news, Stephen was calm and showed very little emotion. Not the sort of thing you'd expect from a man who just watched his wife fall over the edge of a cliff. Investigators immediately became suspicious. At 11.40 p.m., the medical examiner who never actually went to the scene, pronounced Jody dead over the phone. Oh, boy. Yeah. Early the next morning, Stephen agreed to having photographs taken and a search of his vehicle. In the back seat, they found a red nylon bag with a blue nylon bag inside and a Coleman ice chest. The blue nylon bag contained a green blanket, ace bandages, two white towels, a candle, a plastic bag with receipts, one box of wine crackers, and a jewelry box with a necklace inside. At the bottom of the bag, there was also a claw hammer. Oh, you need that. Mm-hmm. Especially at a picnic? What if you have to break something? I don't know. <laughs> the ice chest had a wine glass, one full wine cooler, and one empty wine cooler, and a steak knife. Stephen told the police that he had put the claw hammer in the bag on his way out to the garage to put it back in his toolbox, but had forgotten it was in there. But investigators couldn't help but think that the hammer was maybe plan A. 
<laughs> Investigators had also learned from Stephen that he and Jody had an quote unquote open marriage. Oh, here we go. And that they both had sexual relationships outside of their marriage. Stephen even boasting that he'd had 50 to 60 relationships over the course of 13 years. What? Yes. Stephen even going as far as to say that he had two girlfriends at the time and that he believed Jody was seeing someone too, but that was never proven true. Guess what else Stephen had? What do you have? A $300,000 life insurance policy that he took out on Jody. Of course he did. It had a double indemnity clause, which means that Stephen would get a double payout if his wife's death was an accidental death, including murder by someone other than the recipient. Stephen could get upwards of $750,000. Wow. With almost zero physical evidence to go from, investigators began interviewing friends and family and even Jody's therapist. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. According to them, Stephen had been mentally and physically abusive to Jody, and she was ready to leave him, but feared what might happen when she did. Jody's therapist reported that about a month before Jody died, Stephen had told Jody about a park he had found with a beautiful view at the Palisades, and that he wanted to take Jody there. Jody had told Stephen he was crazy and would not go to a cliff because she was deathly afraid of heights and she didn't want to go anywhere with him alone. Two weeks later, on September 8th, 1992, Jody's attorney served Stephen with divorce papers, alleging that he was unfaithful and abusive. Jody told a friend that Stephen was unhappy about the divorce and that she was afraid of him and wanted him out of the house. The day before Judy's death, she told a family member that Stephen threatened her life and would rather see her dead before he would sign the divorce papers. Okay, so if he has an open marriage mm-hmm. and he's boasting about all the, he has a couple girlfriends on the side and he's got all these encounters. Right. What does he care? What does he care? Oh, about her divorcing him? Yeah, wouldn't that give him like freedom to go do whatever he wants to do? Yeah, you would think that with two chicks on the side, he wouldn't care about his wife wanting to leave him. Yeah, except that maybe he wanted the money, so he had to kill her so he could get the money. Yeah, that's a, that's true. I don't know. All right. Mm, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go into the autopsy report, and it's actually pretty brutal. So if any of you don't want to hear that, just fast forward like a minute, and then we'll see you then. Yeah. Okay. In the autopsy report, the Bergen County Medical Examiner found lacerations on the scalp, skull fractures on the right side of Jody's face. Both sides of Jody's face had abrasions and scrapes. Her right eye socket, nose, and cheek were fractured, and her eyeball was torn. Jody's skull was extensively damaged. Her upper chest area had a nine inch long and four inch wide laceration extending from her right armpit down across her left breast. She had scrapes on her arms and legs and bruising to her lower legs and hand. Her right shoulder was dislocated and her ribs were fractured. Jody's sternum and collarbone were fractured. 
The sack around her heart had been torn. Her lungs were bruised and her spleen and aorta were torn, but she had no broken bones. Jody's injuries were consistent with what ultimately would be a fall from a 10-story building. Jody also had a blood alcohol level of 0.12%, which is four average size drinks. In January of 1993, the cause of Jody's death was listed as could not be determined. The case went cold for 10 years. So they don't think all that was from the fall? No, they do think that all of that was from the fall because it's consistent with falling from a 10-story building. Right. So, yes, she did get those from falling. She bounced all the way down and hit the tree and... Well, well, we'll find out. Okay. Okay, so she also... Her blood alcohol level was really, really high. And according to Stephen, she had had one wine cooler and, like... I mean, they shared a bottle of wine. I don't know if that would make your blood alcohol level that high. Probably not. But also the rescuers immediately smelled alcohol on her. You wouldn't smell. Yeah, there's no way. Yeah, so she must have drank before then or he made her drink. I don't know. In 2003, the Bergen County prosecutor reopened Jody's case. Not only did Jody's family feel like this was not an accident fa- accidental fall, but the investigators and the same medical examiner felt Jody had been pushed as well. Yep. The prosecutors began gathering new testimony from coworkers of Judy's and friends and family, especially that of Stephen and Jody's son Jonathan, who was now in his early 20s. I'm ready to talk about what went on behind closed doors. Jonathan hated his father. Stephen was demanding, controlling, and abusive. Jonathan stated that he witnessed firsthand his father physically abusing his mother and saw bruises on her body all the time. Even recounting an episode where Jody was driving and Stephen began beating on her with clenched fists. What? Jody doing all she could to keep the car from going off the road. For the medical examiner, Jody's case had been the first fall that she had ever done. But now with over 10 more years of experience under her belt and many fall cases that she had done since, she felt like it was time to re-examine the evidence. Except there wasn't any evidence. Investigators and police officers had failed to take any photos of the scene or of Jody's body. They didn't interview any potential witnesses at the Palisades, did not collect any of the blood or tissue samples from the tree. They did not videotape Stephen's interrogation. And even Jody's clothes had been thrown away. How do they not take pictures? I don't know. They didn't take any photos. I don't get it. No, it's this is crazy. It's absolutely how do you not insane. how do you not record interrogating him? Isn't that the whole point of an interrogation? Yes. Yes. Just in case you had to go back to it and go, well, you know, back when we were talking to you, you said this. Right. And they didn't gather any blood from the tree or anything. They didn't do anything. Wow. I know, it's crazy. And that her clothes were just thrown away. Wow. I don't get it. If you ever die under 
weird circumstances, I'm just going to take my own photos with my cell phone. It's probably a good idea. Yeah, just, because just to be on the safe side. So many of these cases, there hasn't been any photos taken or just like really crappy photos taken. Right. And it's like, oh, shoot, there's no more evidence. I don't wow. know. It's just crazy. Because there's little to no physical evidence, they had to hire like a big gun. So I would inter, imagine. Yeah, yeah. Inter, world-renowned medical examiner and pathologist, Dr. Michael Baden. Dr. Baden has investigated the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and the Reverend Martin Luther King, testified as a defense witness for the O.J. Simpson trial, identified the bodies of Tsar Nicholas II of Russia and Nazi doctor Yosef Mengele. Nice. I got it. Yep. He was hired as a forensic expert for Kobe Bryant, Aaron Hernandez, John Belushi, George Floyd, and Jeffrey Epstein. Baden had a show on HBO called Autopsy that ran for 11 seasons. That was one of my favorite shows. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that's who he was. Yes. It was one of my favorite shows actually in high school. He must be getting old. He's 85. Oh, there you go. Mm -hmm. All right. Yes. I mean, he started with the JFK. So Yes. Well, he actually wasn't physically on the investigation for the assassination. Oh, he okay. actually looked at pictures of it many, many years later. Gotcha. Like once he became famous. Okay. Yes. Dr. Baden agreed to look over the case with the original medical examiner. They both concluded that if a person falls accidentally from a great height, their body will be within a couple feet of that building or cliff. You fall straight down. But Jody's body was 50 feet out from the top of the cliff and 30 feet to the north, which means she would have been violently pushed or thrown. If it had been a passive fall, accidental, she would have landed where her purse landed, on the ledge 10 feet down. Yeah, that makes sense. They concluded that it was a propelled fall, which means Jody was pushed. Only would being pushed or thrown give enough propulsion to generate the energy to hit the tree at such a velocity to gain such severe injuries. Prosecutors finally felt they had enough to arrest Stephen for the murder of Jody. He would have to really shove her off that cliff. Yes. Because just to get a body out far enough like that would take a lot of strength. Right. Or throw her from the cliff. Did you say how big she was? Is she small? she itty-bitty thing? No, no. No. They were- um. Maybe used a catapult. like the same. Yeah. No. No. Okay. <laughs> no. It was pretty cool that Do Dr. Bodden came in and did this. Yeah. For them. So he is very, very famous in the world of- pathology for sure that is nuts yes at 7 a.m on the morning of december 7th 2008 in hackettstown new jersey police began banging on the door of stephen scharf with an arrest warrant in hand 16 years after jody's death the now 60 year old was surprised and only asked what agency are you from it's <laughs> <laughs> an interesting question yeah the trial began on April 4th, 2011, almost 20 years after Jody died. The prosecution had an uphill battle. 
With very little physical evidence, they had to rely on circumstantial proofs and what is known as state of mind evidence. Huh. State of mind evidence allows the family, friends, coworkers, and even a therapist tell Jody's story about her marriage to Stephen and her mental state at the time. This hearsay exception, the state of mind exception, is a true exception. It permits someone else to testify to the declarant's statements, and those statements are offered for the truth of the assertions made. Wow. <laughs> yes, I looked up the legal terms for this. <laughs> Sounds very official. Yes, makes me sound very smart. Yep. The trial judge agreed that the testimony of Jody's family, friends, coworkers, and therapist were admissible in court under the hearsay exception. I've never heard of that before. Me neither. Not that I would, I mean, I don't know how I would know, but. Yeah, me neither. I love learning new stuff. Well, you always hear like in obviously movies and all that garbage, they always say that's hearsay. Mm -hmm. Like it can't be it. It's not admissible because it's hearsay. Right. And New Jersey, but, New Jersey started the hearsay exception in 1988. That was the first time it was used in a case. Huh. Because it goes state state to state. Gotcha. Not all states have this hearsay exception. Oh. Yes. Okay. Jonathan Scharf was the state's first witness. He's their son. Okay. Yeah. Right. Jonathan. Yes. He testified that he witnessed the physical abuse by his father towards his mother and remembered seeing the bruises. Jonathan also talked about the night of his mother's death, remembering that Jody did not want to go out with Stephen that night. On cross-examination, the defense attorney tried to prove that Jonathan was testifying against his father in order to receive the life insurance payout since he was the contingent beneficiary on the policy. Gotcha. Meaning he was next in line to receive the hefty sum of money. So it, did Stephen already get the money, I'm assuming? Because now it's been 20 years. Right. Yes, he got the money eventually. Okay. I'll explain it. All right. Yes. Sorry. Good question, though. All right. Yes, good question. Now, Jonathan remembered that night because he really wanted to go to a sleepover at a friend's house. Okay. And he knew if he wasn't there, his mom would kind of be talked into going with his dad right on a date. So he felt really bad about that afterwards because he really wanted to go to the sleepover, but he knew if he went, then his mom would end up going on the date with his dad. So, so there he, was a lot of guilt. He knew something was wrong. Oh, 100%. He knew something was wrong. That's that's bizarre. To yeah. Imagine being in the middle of that. At 10 years old. But knowing something wasn't right. In your gut, you know something. I need wrong. to stay home because my mom doesn't want to go out on a date with my dad. Yeah. And then to carry that guilt for 20 years yeah. after that. Yeah. It's, it's he had to know because when really as soon as he had those feelings and then he finds out, hey, mom accidentally fell off a cliff. If Stephen was found guilty, then he no longer was able to collect on the life insurance. I assume he would have to give it back. Yeah. Is that how that works? I don't know. I mean, how are you going to give it back up, if you don't have it. the money? Yeah, I don't know. Like, what if you spent it all? Well, they could, I mean, they could say that and then you could spend the rest of your life 
get on a payment plan <laughs> trying to pay him back. Yeah. I have no idea. Oh, man, I should have looked that up. I mean, it's Darn like anything it. else. Sorry. They could sue him. But then if he ends up, well, anyway, go ahead. Okay. As Jonathan was leaving the stand, he shouted to his father, I know that you killed her, and now so does everyone else. Five witnesses, including Jody's therapist, were brought up to testify on the statements that Jody had made about being afraid of her husband and scared he was going to hurt her for filing for divorce. They also testified to Jody's incredible fear of heights. Okay, now I'm scared of heights. There's no way you could get me on a cliff like that. You can barely get me in a plane, right. let alone on a cliff. And on lover's chair. Oh, God, no. What, on the edge of a cliff. Yeah, I'll show you pictures when this is done, and I'll post pictures on Instagram. But there's no freaking way. No way I would ever step foot on, the, yeah, <laughs> on that if lover's chair. I'm not afraid of heights, but even walking up to something like that, like a cliff, mm -hmm. you get that weird feeling that comes over you like you're going to fall. Oh, yeah. So I can only imagine how that feels for someone who truly is afraid of heights. Right. A surprising witness came forward. An ex-girlfriend that Stephen had at the time of the accident, who testified that Stephen told her that all his problems and stress would be gone at the end of September. What an idiot. Yeah. Dr. Michael Batten took the stand for the state and testified that he believed Jody had been pushed off the side of the cliff as she was standing and facing out. Her injuries were not consistent with somebody tumbling down a cliff face. Ouch. Yes, so there would be a difference. So if you're pushed, the trajectory of being pushed makes you go forward right. off of this cliff, right? Right. If she would have just lost her footing and fallen, she would have rolled down that cliff and probably rested on that ledge that was 10 feet down. Right. So she would have scratches, broken bones. She might have survived it. She might have survived it. But there were also no injuries on her back. Oh, there were no so scratches. She... There was no, There's nothing on her back. Yeah. Which if she were to fall, she probably would have rolled down the cliff and gotten scratches and bruises right. and all that stuff on she her She basically back. dove yes. over. Yes. Dove over the cliff. Yes. Like he had to have pushed her so hard. I don't even think I could push somebody that hard. Yeah. I wonder. She'd have to be standing there and he'd have to almost mm. run up behind her and just hit her like a linebacker. Right. And make sure there's no witnesses around. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. Isn't this a crazy case? And then, of course, there's the alcohol yes. line. And she obviously was heavily intoxicated. So I don't know. I mean, that has to play a role in this, doesn't it? Yeah, unless he, like, covered her in it to make her smell worse than she was. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Or. Like, splashed it on her or something? Are you asking me to give my guess what I think happened? No, not yet. Oh, okay. Guess at the end. All right, I'll guess at the end. Okay. Now, Stephen's defense team had an ace up their sleeve as well. They had hired another world-renowned forensic pathologist, Dr. Cyril Wecht. Wecht was, no, was well known for working on cases such as Robert F. Kennedy, Sharon Tate, Elvis Presley, Kurt Cobain, John Benet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, and Anna Nicole Smith. 
Wow. Do you know who any of those people are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Dr. Wecht and Dr. Baden are very critical of one another. I bet they are. They are like rivals. <laughs> they just talk crap, actually, about each other constantly. Are they both 85? They're both very old. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So it's like grumpier old men. Oh, yes. That's what I picture. Yes, Only they're crazy sure. pathologists. Yes, crazy and pathologists. So there's that. Forensic pathologists. So they were critical of one another, especially after Dr. Wecht disagreed with Dr. Baden's findings with the John F. Kennedy assassination. They both had pictures to go off of, and they disagreed about the pictures. Nice. <laughs> Basically. Oh, goodness. All right. Dr. Wecht concluded that Jody's death was attributed to an accidental fall. He believes that Jody slipped and fell due to intoxication and hit the jagged rock ledge that was 10 feet below the lever's chair where her purse had landed, causing her wounds. Jody's head became impacted in a crevice between two rocks. The weight of Jody's body coming after then catapulted her over the ledge, loosening her head from the grips of the rocks. Oh, my gosh. She was flung into the tree canopy that carried her body to that one specific tree, kind of ping-ponging her through the trees. Right. I can just envision that. It's just horrible. Yeah, it's not a good vision. No. Stephen decided not to testify in his own defense. The trial lasted almost a month and came to rest on May 24th, 2011. The jury deliberated for two and a half days. They found Stephen guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Stephen appealed, and the New Jersey Superior Court Appellate Division reversed his conviction and sentence. Are you serious? According to the Appellate Division, Portions of the testimony given by the five witnesses on the stand were hearsay and irrelevant. On appeal, the New Jersey Supreme Court reinstated Stevens' conviction and sentence. <laughs> they found that the statements by the witnesses proved Jody's mental state before her death and that they did qualify as state of mind evidence. Stephen is serving out his sentence at a New Jersey prison. I couldn't find any information as to what prison he is at. So he's, so he's taxpayer money. Guilty. Okay? Not guilty. Guilty. <laughs> yes. Prison. Yes. Yeah, so taxpayer Holy money crap. paid for him, his appeal. Right. Just for them to say, no, it's, it's being held up. Your wow. conviction is being held up. Fun fact. You want a fun fact, babe? Yeah. Let's try and make this fun. It's actually not fun. Oh. I just like to call it a fun fact. All right. Go ahead. Stephen never made a claim on the life insurance policy. Only when it was about to be turned over to the state over 10 years later did Stephen bother to collect on it. Oh. Yeah. So did he get it? He eventually got it, but he didn't, he oh, didn't make a claim on the life insurance right. policy for over 10 years after she died. So if he was so money hungry and wanted that $750,000, don't you think he would have made a claim on it like within the first year of her death? Yeah, that's kind of bizarre. I know. I know. When I read that, it kind of it put a big question mark in my head. So maybe that was just a 
side kind mm. of perk. Right. Like he didn't actually do that thinking he'd make a lot of money off of her. Right. But then what? what is the other motive to push her off a cliff when she wanted to divorce him? He's psycho. I don't know. Okay. I, yeah. My thought was, what if she wasn't awake at the time and then he mm. poured alcohol over her and then shoved her off when it was appropriate? Although then if someone's not awake, she'd be just kind of slumped. And we'll never know because her clothes were thrown away. Right. All right. Another fun fact. Jody had never been to Lover's Chair or even the Cliffs before that night. I thought they'd been many times. Nope. He lied. Oh. And so how the hell do you convince someone who's super afraid of heights mm-hmm. to go to that place? And then the son testified that she didn't want to go. Right. How so, do you get her to that spot? And she'd have to be standing on the edge. So how how did he get her to do that so, willingly? Right. So I had read from a few of her friends in the court transcripts. I had read that they thought that he had lured her there with wanting to talk about the divorce and giving her full custody of her son, Jonathan, because if he would have, he would have used Jonathan as bait, right? they said, which made a lot of sense. Like, Hey, if you come out with me tonight, because he also liked to tell people that they were trying to work on their relationship. And so this was the start of trying to heal their marriage was going to this lover's chair. And so he could have said, if you go with me and you go on this date with me, I will give you full custody of Jonathan. See, yeah. Then, then she needs to really be worried. Yeah. It's like, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. I mean, she was so scared of this man. So scared of him. Why didn't she just leave him? I don't know. Get in the car and drive away. Don't look back. I don't know. She was afraid of him. When you are afraid of somebody. Then drive away and never come back. I think you just want to try to keep peace with this person. Yeah. Because you're so scared of them. You don't know what they're going to do. So you just want to keep peace. Yeah. I mean, that's my opinion, obviously. I had questions about the Palisades, about these cliffs. Do you have questions about these cliffs, darling? I'd like to see a picture of them. Yes. Okay. It's a very cool spot. All right. It's a very cool thing to look at. So I kind of wanted to explain to people what this place actually is. Yeah. So I'm going to give everyone the Wikipedia version of what the Palisades are. The Palisades are also known as the New Jersey Palisades or the Hudson River Palisades. They are a line of steep cliffs along the west side of the lower Hudson River North of the George Washington Bridge, the cliffs stretch north from New Jersey City about 20 miles to Nyack, New York. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. I had looked up how to say every other word except for that one. Okay. They rise nearly vertically from the edge of the river. In some areas, they rise from 300 feet high and increasing gradually to 540 feet high. You can see the cliffs from Midtown Manhattan. The Palisades are a national natural landmark. Say that five times fast. (laughs) I've never heard of them before. I didn't know anything was like that out there. I thought it was pretty flat-ish. Yeah, and they're beautiful. Huh. 
The Palisades are also known as the location for the famous duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, which took place in a spot known as Heights of Weehawken on July 11th, 1804. What? (laughs) Do you know what they were dueling over? A woman? I don't know. No. 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 I had to look it up because I have questions and then I look it up. I actually have no idea. They were political rivals. Hamilton was a Federalist and Burr was a Republican. Hamilton had made some disparaging remarks about, about Burr, who was the vice president at the time. It got back to Burr and he challenged Hamilton to a duel. Hamilton shot over Burr's head. Burr returned fire and hit Hamilton in the lower abdomen above his right hip. Hamilton died the next day from the fatal gunshot. I never knew that. I think we need to do more dueling. That's what it sounds like to me. (laughs) Yes, and there's been 18 recorded duels on the Palisades. Well, it sounds like a fabulous place to do it. I mean, where else? Get that view. Yeah, well, from what I was reading, the reason that they always chose the Palisades is because it was against the law to duel. Oh. You could in New York and in New Jersey, but New Jersey was a little more lenient. So they would cross the Hudson and duel on the Palisades. Huh. I know. That's crazy. I've never heard of that before. I find things like that fascinating. And that I hope, is interesting. I, I mean, I've heard of the duel too. between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, but I didn't know. Well, yeah, because of the or... peanut butter commercial or the milk commercial. That's what it was. Remember the milk oh, well, commercial? Yeah, that. I mean, I heard about it before then. But... Okay, I never. Yeah, had. where he couldn't he couldn't pronounce it. Yeah, Owen Ball. What? Owen Ball. (laughs) And his mouth is filled with peanut butter. All these young people are going to be like, what the hell is she talking about? I don't know. (laughs) It's a milk commercial. Go look it up. It's probably on YouTube. Right. uh, Yeah. I bet it is. I bet it's on YouTube. (laughs) Aaron Burr commercial on YouTube or something like that. No, just do milk commercial. Yeah. Funny milk commercial. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So my resources for this case were a ton of articles, court transcripts, a television program called Accident, Suicide, or Murder, and there was a Dateline episode. Nice. Yes. And I'm sorry that I always say a ton of articles, but I get super into these cases that I am just constantly looking up information. So I don't actually stop to like write down where I get my information from articles and stuff like that. So I apologize. Yeah. But it's a lot though. We'd have like a hundred different articles. <laughs> yeah. But I do love court transcripts. That's actually my favorite thing to look up. Sounds fascinating. <laughs> Doesn't it though? <laughs> no. Uh so what do you think of my case? That's insane. Yeah. I, I mean, clearly, in my opinion, he did it. Yes. I think he did. I don't it know too. how he did it. I don't know how he got Based her on up what there. they're saying. I agree with the first forensic pathologist in that if he she slipped, she could have even ended up feet first. Mm. Like slid down or even mm-hmm. kind of did almost like a somersault over it kind of thing, but you would be up against the hillside. You wouldn't be way out. No. No, not at all. And you really don't bounce. She wouldn't bounce 50 feet no, away. No. But how the hell does he get her out there that far? That's the question. That's the million-dollar question. 
How in the world did he lure her out there when she was so afraid of heights? I can't wait to show you these pictures of the Palisades because there's no way I would be up there. No way. Yeah. And the, the psychology behind it is always baffling to me yes. as to why people do what they do. Mm-hmm. Or why they think they're going to get away. And why people stay. They didn't mention anything about her having doing stuff on the side, right? No, he said that, but there's no proof that she had extramarital affairs. Yeah, I'm not buying that. Mm -mm. He told them that they had an open marriage. So he just said that to cover for his side of it. Like, it's okay that I have all these girlfriends because we have an open marriage. Right. And she was dating dudes on the side, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. All right. Well, I feel bad for their son. I mean, she sounded like she was a wonderful mother, and he only got her for 10 years. Yeah. So I hope he has some really great memories of his mom that he can hold on to for the rest of his life. Yeah. Too bad she picked a bad guy. I know. I know. Thank you to everybody who's been rating and reviewing and clicking that check button. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. We're having so much fun doing this, and we hope to continue for a long time. Yep. We'll keep bouncing along. Bouncing along. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. We'll keep doing this. Um, If you want to get a hold of us, actually, the best place to get a hold of us is probably Instagram. Let's just do that. We're now on TikTok, which I have no idea what we're doing on TikTok, but we're on there, so... Yeah. I guess you can come find us. Every once in a while, you walk up to me and say, we're going to do something on TikTok, and then I cringe. And then I have to Google how to post on TikTok. Right. Yeah, that's that's embarrassing. Because I still don't know what it means. I can't believe I just admitted that. All right. Well, be careful. Because marriage is a life sentence. Bye. Bye. Bye.